Welcome to episode 141 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, yo, brother. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Had a nice, uh, calm Lord's Day. Some good food, some good drink, good company. Can't beat it. You sound great. And for those that are tracking with us, I want to provide some continuity from the previous episode. And you provide this wonderful juxtaposition. So last week, you will recall that the sun was out, your guns were out. You got that, you were rocking that muscle shirt. But yeah. this week, you're back to like a hooded sweatshirt. Yeah, you know, you're forcing me into the weather cast again, <laughs> but it's cold and rainy out. It's like really cold and rainy. So I had to do a little bit of a few things outside. And so I was just like drenched. So when I came in, I was like, I had to get warm. There's nothing quite like a really soft hoodie. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. And this is an exceptionally soft hoodie that I got from confessionalwear.com. <laughs> it's a Reform Brotherhood hoodie. Uh, check it out. You got we've got our own uh, our own gear store there, but the Reform Pilgrims also have a pretty good sampling of uh, merchandise. They have a trucker hat, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, trucker hats are killer. Yeah, you can also still get the coveted. Uh, the coveted, according to Christ, Arminian tears make um, caution, maybe bitter tumbler or mug or whatever it was. So there's all yeah. kinds of brilliant stuff at confessional wear. And I didn't even mean for that really to be an advertisement. It just, but we, we can't resist. It's all good. It just happened. It's all good. But lest somebody think that that is actually what we're affirming, though, we do, of course, condone all the wonderful things that are on that site. Why don't you kick us off with some affirmations? So mine is, is, you might call it like an oldie, but a goodie, but I'm, I'm just affirming the Lord's day. Like, it's just a good, you know, like how many other days of the week, I suppose in a roundabout way, you could say all of them, but how many other days of the week are a gift from the Lord? Like a special gift to his people, right on. a particular instance of grace that God has given to his people. Um, that is just our opportunity. And, you know, there's been some recent, dust-ups in the uh, Twitter sphere, online sphere. I'm not going to get into it, but there was a, a photograph of a particularly well-known Orthodox uh, Presbyterian minister uh, who was traveling, and he was invited to have lunch out uh, to talk about theology and uh, seminary and some other things, and uh, it was on the Lord's Day, and people lost their minds. So, I, you know, we get so wrapped up in, like, trying to parse out what exactly can we do, what exactly can't we do, and we, we very quickly lose sight of the fact that, like, the Lord's Day is supposed to be a gift to us. Yes, there's an obedience element to it. All of God's blessings comes with expectations, but um, let's just, like, take a step back and just remember the Lord's Day was made for man, not man for the Lord's day. Right on. That's a good word. One of my favorite, perhaps my most favorite explanation of the Lord's day comes from the Puritans who called it a festive day of rest. Yeah. And I just love those, that combination of those two things. Like it's, it is a party, but it's a party that brings refreshment and rejuvenation as opposed to, you know, hosting a party that just wipes you out. So it's just a wonderful combination of things. And that combination can really only exist in consummate harmony because God has given it explicitly for that purpose. So I think for those, like you're saying, you don't have to be like a strict Sabbatarian in the sense that you have a really strong proclivity, I guess, to to really try to celebrate the Lord's Day in a narrow way to to recognize that it is both a time of joyful celebration that brings you energy and that at the same time can bring you rest. Yeah, And I think anybody that tries to invest in it in that sense, in just acknowledging and respecting and being obedient is going to find that to be the case. So that's a good yeah. word. That's that. We, I mean, we can affirm that. I was going to say every day of the week and twice on the Lord's Day, but really it's about the Lord's Day. So that's the day right. in which we should really affirm it. Yeah, exactly. And it is the day we're affirming it. It absolutely is. So what about you? So you're aware of my affirmation uh, for this week, and I, I think that we're in agreement that this is probably a unique affirmation, but it's it's going to start broad, and I'm big funnel at the top, and then I'm going to bring it down. So the affirmation starts just by saying, 
I want to affirm all of our listeners. And what a wonderful thing that when you come into the family of God, when God saves you, he draws you onto himself in such a way that you're in Christ, and then you're also united with this wonderful community of believers. And first and foremost, that includes our church to which we belong locally and geographically. But then in his goodness and his loving kindness, he uses things like this silly little podcast to bring about this larger connection, this larger family, as you would, a, a brotherhood and a sisterhood of believers. And we're just so blessed to be interacting with so many different people who listen and provide encouragement to us. And I want to say first, sometimes it may seem like we're, we're fishing for encouragement, but we're really not. I mean, so many people do write to us and say some wonderful things. We, we love both the critique and the encouragement. But we got an email this week that I think is <laughs> among the most encouraging strangely encouraging that we've, we've ever received. And I almost deleted the email because of the subject line, because I thought it was just straight up spam. Yeah. But, with, but without further ado, and I don't want to give anything away uh, about the, the identity of this person, because we are, as you will soon, soon learn, a HIPAA compliant podcast. <laughs> but a, a kind brother, and I have to say he's a brother, because you'll realize why in a second, wrote to us to say uh, that he was encouraged by the podcast and that he had listened to the podcast recently on that day while having a vasectomy (laughs) (laughs) and that that was helpful to him uh, because it provided a little bit of distraction and hopefully a little (laughs) bit of of edification. And so I think that's probably the most unique email we've received in terms of somebody telling us what they've been doing while they've been listening to the podcast. Yeah, I think so. You know, I don't, I don't have any scientific way to prove this, but I think we probably are the only reform podcasts on the internet that someone has listened to while having a vasectomy. (laughs) I was trying to think of a clever way to say that, and I just can't. I can't. I just can't. Well, actually, when I read this email, one of the first things I thought besides, wow, that is like super encouraging. Like of all the things you could choose to listen to, it's that's really wonderful. But the second thing was, as we've talked about before, our longtime listeners know that we were up for some kind of healthcare award. Yes, yes, and that's true. And this all seems to be coming full circle. So we, one might ask, is the Reformed Brotherhood podcast the preferred podcast to listen to while you're having a surgical procedure? The answer, I believe, is yes. The, yeah, the results it, seem to indicate yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unanimous at this point. Nobody has told us that we're, we're not helpful to listen to during surgery, so... Right. So I want to affirm that. I just love that sense of encouragement. It was really such a lighthearted and really encouraging email to to send us that and to think of us that way. In addition to that, I guess I would encourage everybody, if you're getting an MRI, maybe some local surgery in an out procedure, outpatient patients, uh, you know, surgery, you know, give us a listen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you, some might not count us as successful in the traditional sense, but uh, in the last like three months, we've been nominated as the top 50 innovative healthcare firms. Uh, we're the eighth most popular uh, podcast, reform podcast on the internet, according to the Pharaoh's dreams, memes, whatever uh, thing. And now uh, we are the number one podcast to listen to while you are having yourself surgically sterilized. So, right. Yeah. So, I I mean, there's nowhere to go, but down from here, Jesse. Yeah, this is definitely the peak. And I can say that confidently, both in terms of the entire arc of the podcast and probably this particular episode, because I'm (laughs) guessing nobody popped this on their phone or whatever their audio player is looking at the title for like, you know, our forum preaching chapter six and thought, surely vasectomy is going to come up. (laughs) In the course of this conversation. And that was the title, the subject of this particular email, which is why I almost just deleted it outright because I was like, well, that's definitely some kind of really strange spam email. But it turns out it was just some loving encouragement. And so I want to affirm our listeners who give to us financially, who give to us by way of encouragement, who give to us by way of critique and suggestions and questions. Thank you so much. I affirm you all. And and for that, brother, I hope... You know, everything's healing up well and is getting iced down appropriately. <laughs> yes. So do you want to yes. deny something before we just take this episode right <laughs> off the rails? Yeah. So I am denying distracted retail workers. So um, oh, there's got to be a story here. Yeah. So my wife and I are uh, AT&T subscribers and we are on that uh, AT&T Next plan where you you pay your phone off in uh, interest-free installments over the course of a certain amount of time, and you have the option to trade in your phone at no charge. Um, 
after, you know, prior to fully paying off the bill. And so we went into the local AT&T store, which is um, not a an actual AT&T store, but it's like an affiliate store. And there was two guys working. I've met both of them before. Very nice guys, um, generally competent at what they do. But they were so utterly distracted by each other. So like one of the guys had some sort of weird account thing going on. And the other guy who was trying to help us kept on like turning around to try to help this guy. So like what should have taken about maybe 10 minutes, we were in the store for over an hour. And at one point, you know, he brings out uh, Ashley's new phone. He sets it down and he's starting to set up. He had another phone in his hand. Now, I don't know if uh, did you ever work retail at all on anything? Just briefly. Yeah. So when you work with electronics, you're talking about high ticket items. Right. You do not set those things down and then walk away like you you carry them with you. He set down a phone in front of us along with the one that we had just purchased. Now, keep in mind, like you pay these out over time, but these are thousand dollar phones. Like that's how much these phones cost. He left it at the table with us. And actually, if I hadn't asked for a receipt, he would not have planned on coming back to us. Wow. So we literally and and this is these are phones that are kept under lock. There's no sensors at the door. We literally could have just picked up a thousand dollar phone and walked out the door with it. Wow. So it was a frustrating experience. I worked retail, so I try to be patient with these guys. There's not enough of them in the store. There's too many customers. I get it. But like, just focus on one thing at a time, man. Focus on one thing at a time. Amen. Yeah. What are you denying? Mine is somewhat related, actually. And I'm glad that your denial wasn't like something super theological, like you had some controversy you were going to come down on. So I can, I feel more comfortable now sharing mine because I'm just going to sound super whiny. That's okay. So... Our, our uh, pharmacy is one of the chains. It's CVS. And I don't know if you have this feature at your pharmacy where like you can set up so they can text you when your prescription's in. Yeah. Here's the funny thing about CVS and subsequently what I'm denying is I get the sense that when CVS fills your prescription and texts you, if you don't text them back within like 30 minutes... I, apparently they're fearful that you've been kidnapped or there's some kind of taken situation that's happening yeah, yeah. because then they go buck wild. They do. And there's like threats you. and there's like anger. <laughs> they're like a, they're like that overly attached girlfriend meme. Yeah. It's exactly like that. You will get bombarded by texts. It's crazy. So um, it's a combo affirm- or affirmation, a combo denial. I'm denying that even though again, I've opted in. So I'm just being whiny. But in addition to that, I think I'm not the first one to know what is up with the length of CVS receipts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like, why? I I don't know. I don't know. It's almost like they're doing it on purpose at this point. Yes, I think so, too. I I had a friend in college who ran out of toilet paper, and he literally uh, went to (laughs) to CVS and bought... Like, he went in and bought several packs of gum, but he bought them, like, one at a time to get a giant roll. And I was like, you know, they sell toilet paper at CVS. <laughs> and he was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say at that point he was just doing it on principle. No, I don't think it was. But yeah, they're they're monstrous receipts. They are crazy. In this they don't really, age, and it doesn't really serve a purpose either. It's exactly. not like there's rebates or anything. It's just a lot of extra information. It's a ton of information. And in this day and age where everything is about thin margins and cutting costs everywhere, hence the text messaging thing, you'd think they'd be like, listen, how much money, could, it's a large corporation, how much money yeah. could we save by cutting the receipts in half? I mean, some bean counter somewhere has figured out that they actually make more money with doing it this way or they wouldn't be doing it. I, don't, I have no idea. I mean, it, it's possible that there's some like, uh, you know, sometimes like you take a, you take a loss in business to for some reason that doesn't have to do with profits, but I can't not imagine what it must be. So there must be some <laughs> calculation they've done where they're making more money if they print out these ridiculous receipts than if they don't. As in somebody's like deciding where to fill the prescription and they're like, I could go to Walgreens or I could go to Walmart or I could go to CVS. Who has the longest receipt? That's yeah. the place I want to go. Although maybe it's a pharmacy thing because Wal- Walgreens has some pretty long receipts too. Somebody, somebody with an earshot has got to know the answer to this. Yeah. So hopefully the, they can let us in. The, the last time I bought something at CVS, I actually left the counter and was at the door and the printer was still going. I was like, I don't need the receipt. 
and you, you could just tell that out. it was just this like sense of defeat on the person's face because they knew they were gonna have to sit there while this thing printed out. And I literally was like out, like walking out the door, and the thing was still going. So oh, that's so great. Wait, can I tell one more CVS story? But and this yeah. is actually, I don't know if I should tell this story, but because again, this is all in the the brotherhood. I'm just gonna let everybody in a secret here. So yeah, real quick, you know how. At CVS place, at pharmacy, CVS, Walgreens, all this stuff, Rite Aid, they often have a way in which you can return unused prescriptions. Yeah. Apparently, you can also do that at your local police office, but I find that mm-hmm. kind of weird. I always feel like they're about to cuff me for some reason if I go in there and be like, I have pills. <laughs> so we were in a CVS uh, several months ago, and they had like one of those like really nice, thickly padded envelopes right on the counter by where you get your prescriptions fulfilled. And so my wife grabbed a couple envelopes because we do have a bunch of prescriptions that we just don't know what to do with. And so we took them home, did all this stuff, sent it all in. To, I would say maybe a month after that, we were back at CVS and she grabbed some more of these envelopes at the counter. And as we went to pay, the person ringing us up said, oh, do you want me to ring up the envelopes as well? <laughs> and <laughs> we were like, uh, what? And they're like, yeah, do you, want us, do you want to pay for those here? So apparently... We just steal stuff from CVS. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So Ashley, up- Ashley accidentally did that one time too. She went in to buy like some ice trays and she thought they came in a pack of two, but it was just two of them that were stuck together. <laughs> so she like super meekly and embarrassed went back. She was sure they were going to like arrest her for shoplifting. I was like, it was an accident. Shoplifters yeah. don't bring stuff back. Yeah, exactly. You that's, can't get that's arrested for like returning merchandise you didn't purchase. True. I mean, that's how we felt. So we tried to like make good on that, but it, they confused them so much that they were like, it's really okay. But I felt, yeah. off, but didn't that used to be free? Like you could get the envelopes or whatever know. and like return them? I don't know. I, I, just, our CVS doesn't take back medication, so I don't know. Oh, really? So yeah, yeah, so maybe it's, see, I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, one last story since this is the Reformed Storycast, apparently. Story time. Um, so in a similar vein of getting something you didn't pay for, but not being allowed to uh, correct the situation. So I, I have not worked for Best Buy for five years now, probably. Um, so I used to work for Best Buy and then I didn't for a while and then I did again and now I don't. And the first time that I worked for Best Buy, I had an AT&T discount, a corporate discount that was applied for all Best Buy employees. Well, when I went back to Best Buy the second time, I went to reapply for my AT&T discount and found that it had never been terminated in the first place. (laughs) Oh, wow. So... So now that I no longer worked at Best Buy, I knew that it wasn't going to terminate automatically. So I actually contacted AT&T's headquarters and I was like, hey, I got this discount, but I don't work for the company anymore. So I need you to turn it off. And first of all, the guy was like he had never heard of anyone intentionally turning off a discount they don't (laughs) deserve anymore. But he's like, "Okay, well, I'll send I'll send you an email and you just have to confirm it and then you send it back. So, you know, he sends the email. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. I'm checking my spam email. I'm back. And I'm like, I never got the e- the email. I, I called him back. He goes, oh, no, no. We send it to the email that's associated with your corporate discount. And I said, well, I don't work there anymore. I don't have access to that email. Oh, well, there's no other way to turn it off. And I was like, but I, I don't work there anymore. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't work for the company anymore. He's like, well, there's no way to turn it off if you don't. If you don't have access to that email. And I said, so do you have people who are still entitled to the, the discount that are requesting to turn it off? He's like, I've never had anyone ever request to turn it off. So I don't know. So I still, I mean, it's been five years. I still have an AT&T discount for, from through Best <laughs> That's Buy incredible. that I can't get them to turn off. I've tried more than one time to ask them to turn it off, change plans, everything. Like there's no way to turn it off. That's so. wild. I love that that's like outside their policy. Like that yeah. dude, like when you called him, he was like, like furiously flipping through like the scripts, like <laughs> turn off discount, turn off discount. I don't see it here. Yeah. He p- typed in turn off discount into the computer and the whole building exploded. So <laughs> it was unfortunate. That's what uh, happens when you ask to have a discount shut off. That's great. I love story time. Well, speaking yeah. of stories and then from stories to books, this is... <laughs> The bookcast episode we've been yes. reading Reform Preaching by Dr. Joel Beakey. And as we said before, not too late for anybody to jump in, either in the chapter that we're currently talking about today 
or just to catch up because we're really only about a little over 100 pages in, I think 130 pages into the book. This is chapter six. And the wonderful thing about this book is it's great to read it sequentially, but you could also kind of read it in a compartmentalized fashion by looking at each of the chapters as kind of their own little microcosm of whatever he's talking about. And so chapter six is this continuation of looking at a particular preacher and really dissecting the nuances of the style and trying to understand how it fits within what Dr. Beakey has been describing as experiential reform preaching. So this week, we're on to John Calvin. Yeah, this is the big one. The big one. Most people know John Calvin as a theologian. Um, They may think of him as a pastor. Um, They may think of him as kind of a controversial figure. But first and foremost, John Calvin was a preacher. So we don't often think about the fact that he had a robust, active preaching ministry that, I mean, just dwarfs even the most active preachers nowadays. Um, He preached something like four or five times a week for the entire time that he was in Geneva the second time. So he had an enormously productive, enormously um, popular preaching ministry. People would come from all around um, Switzerland and and France to to hear him preach. Michael Servetus not only risked his life to come hear Calvin preach, but ultimately he ended up losing his life because he wanted to hear, at least some accounts say he wanted to hear Calvin preach. Uh, So he ended up in Geneva where he was then (laughs) captured and executed. So you just have to ask, was it worth it? And I don't know, I can't answer that question for him, but I would have loved to hear John Calvin preach. Yeah, just an exceptional preacher. And what's really strange about that is he never, as Dr. Beakey talks about, never transcribed or wrote down any of his own sermons. It's really interesting that all of what we know about them kind of comes from somebody else transcribing them. But what immediately came out to me in how he was writing about Calvin from the very top of the chapter was just that here was a man who sensed the full gravity of preaching. And he did this in a really interesting way by acknowledging that it's still like the ordinary and normal means of salvation and benediction. But what hit me from the the very beginning was how Calvin had this firm understanding that the Holy Spirit is the internal minister who uses the external minister. So there's a sense that the preacher in the inner testimony of the Spirit should be distinguished because they, they are different categorically, but they cannot be separated. And that's a really serious weight on preaching. And I don't mean serious as in like dull or rote but almost like a joyful seriousness that when he got up to preach, of course it wasn't about entertainment. It wasn't even about trying to maybe grab the attention of the audience. It was about understanding that the internal minister was about to speak through the external minister. And that just floored me because I think that when we talk about like everything he accomplished, it's easy to kind of almost venerate Calvin, but because he got that understanding, right, he was so productive. I think his preaching was so strong and it all flowed out of that fountainhead. Yeah, and I think something that uh, Dr. Beakey points out that that is really important for us and where I really see the payoff of this book for the uh, kind of the non-preaching reader is Calvin really stressed that it's important for the listener to hear the sermon well. Yes. And so so that's not necessarily talking about, you know, like strategies for note-taking or anything like that. Sometimes that can be very helpful. Sometimes note-taking can actually get in the way of properly hearing a sermon. But he really wanted the people to understand, and so he spent a lot of time explaining the theology that you just kind of highlighted, that when, and to kind of quote the uh, Second Helvetic Confession, when the word is faithfully preached by a lawfully ordained man, it is the very word of God that is being preached. Not right not in this auxiliary sense that we sometimes think of it. We're like, yeah, you preach the word. Um, that's a much more specific thing for Calvin. And that, that ties into what we've talked about with sort of this understanding in the Reformed tradition that preaching is the new covenant ordinance of prophecy. It's not just uh, delivering a lecture or communicating some information. It's actually delivering the very word of God to the people and applying it to them. And so Calvin wanted his listeners to understand that it's really important to really uh, focus and devote yourself to prayer before the sermon and all these other things that he talks about that just make it uh, clear that the word of God is, is being given to you and that you are, are a willing and eager recipient of it. There was really, it seems like a special equipping that Calvin undertook in his preaching. And I noticed that Dr. Beakey at least notes three things in particular that Calvin taught his people, the spirit in which they should come to the sermon, like to your point. 
So the first one is that he notes that this acknowledgement of the importance of preaching, which we kind of already talked about. The second thing was to, to desire preaching as the supreme blessing. And that really struck me as well. Like, what does it mean to desire preaching as supreme blessing? And then the third thing was participate as actively in the sermon as the preacher himself. So yeah. I wanted to like discuss a little bit of that with you. Like, so first off, when you hear like desire preaching as the supreme blessing, what does it mean to get in that space? How do we get ourselves, you think, into that space where is this amazing blessing that trumps everything else? Well, I think, you know, for me, the first... So I have, over the last maybe year and a half, really started, I think, to grow in my understanding of preaching. And not just like my understanding of the mechanics of preaching, I think I'm growing there too. But my understanding of the theology of preaching and why it is that God uses preaching versus some other mode of communication, why it is that we can't just replace preaching with some other form of teaching. Um, And as I've learned that theology and internalized that theology, my desire to hear the sermon has increased. So previously, Mm. like when I would miss a Lord's Day, even if it was for a a lawful reason, it was kind of like, oh, well, you know, like all it's fine. Like, I don't need I don't need to hear the preaching. And as I've grown in this, it's like these you to to kind of borrow Christ's phrasing. These are the words of life. Right. Right. And so the apostles knew when they were confronted by the incarnate word of God and his teaching, they said, you in you are the words of life. Where else could we go? And so for us, the the preaching of the word on the Lord's, particularly on the Lord's day, but any other time that it's, it's preached in the congregation, where else can we go? Like, that's the feeling we should have is the idea of missing out on missing an opportunity to hear the word of the Lord delivered to us by a lawfully ordained man that should kind of make us ache inside to think about that. And so I think to get in that space, you really need to study and understand what it is that God is doing in the preaching act, because it's, it's not the same as like going to listen to a lecture or like sitting in on a class or something like that. Like those things are desirable for their own reasons, but this is desirable on a whole different level. It's, it's desirous the same way that, that taking a deep breath after you've been underwater is like we go the whole week and we're kind of in, this, um, we, we read our Bible, we do this, but we're in this sort of this ocean of, of non-preaching, of non-receiving the word of God. When we have that opportunity on the Lord's day, we should, we should be taking it in as a deep breath or as a good meal or something along those lines. There's something that's obvious here, but it's also really deep. So the fact that yeah. Dr. Beakey notes that Calvin taught this, of course, implies that it needed to be taught. So I find it really interesting. We often think of our preachers as, you know, exegetically minded as proclaiming the word of God to us, as being heralds of the gospel. And that's all true. And yet at the same time, I love that what he's doing here is almost laying like a presupposition because as you were giving that answer, I was thinking you're talking about everything that underpins our experience before we get there. And maybe we cannot get to that place unless somebody instructs us, as you kind of been saying, even instructing me now on how to think about preaching on what it is that we're receiving, that we're stagnant pools of water and that unless we receive in this new, you know, this new blessing, this refreshment of new water and new life, that that pool remains stagnant. So it's interesting to think that we have to be instructed in this way and that Calvin would at least had enough, was preaching enough, so to speak, to say that his congregation needed that. They need yeah. to be taught, not just from the scriptures, but also what it meant to come under preaching as a supreme blessing. Because we've talked about this before, and I'm sure you and I have both been guilty of it, as we've also mentioned that sometimes preaching, because it comes at the end of most services, is the thing that abuts up against, you know, the, whatever hour it is that your church service ends, yeah. and is the thing which we are often so eager to get out of and for it to right. end. And we don't think of it primarily as the supreme blessing of the morning. We often think about yeah. the music or the fellowship or the camaraderie or the food as a right. supreme blessing. And here he has to teach his congregation that. And I wonder if more of our pastors need to teach this as well. I don't know how they teach that through their preaching or if that happens in a venue outside of that. But the fact that it was so important to Calvin that Dr. Beakey notes it as among his three priorities is fascinating to me. Yeah. And, you know, it it strikes me that um, the situation that Calvin found himself in, um, that the reformers found themselves in, and the, the situation that we find ourselves in, in terms of biblical literacy and understanding of, of kind of experiencing the reality of, of God's church, we're actually in very similar circumstances. And this is what I mean, is that, you know, in the, in the high Middle Ages, um, the 
preaching, if you could even call it that, was essentially a moralistic uh, speech with some sur- like with some some scripture tacked into it. And it was often the only part of the sermon that was was delivered in the vernacular. And so right. the people broadly, the people writ large did not understand what preaching was. We talked about it with the last chapter with Zwingli and um, the other two, I don't uh, Ocalampadius and um, Bollinger is they were it was kind of like people were surprised and they're like, oh, he's preaching from the Bible. Yeah, and so right. there was there was this sort of moralism that was just sort of maybe sprinkled with a little bit of scripture, and and what do we find ourselves in now? Right, we see a lot of sermons that are about how to uh, how to improve your marriage or how to live a blessed life, how to how to succeed at business, how to raise your children, all of these things that are about moralistic self improvement, and we'll scatter some scripture on top of it. And so the the congregations in the Reformation had to be taught what it meant to receive the word of God, to really receive the word of God on the Lord's day versus receiving what was sort of like peddled to them as the word of God. And I think we're very much in the same spot. Even a lot of reformed Christians coming out of evangelicalism, coming out of their Arminian backgrounds, coming out of their sort of like big tent evangelicalism, the preaching is they don't understand what it is that preaching is. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from a book like this, particularly from a chapter like this, um, as leaders in the church, as people informal leadership, right? I'm a deacon in the church, so I have certain formal responsibilities. But then as leaders in the church, kind of on an informal level, people who have a platform like a podcast or a blog or some other platform where they're able to influence people, we need to learn about how it is we help the church remember what it means to receive the word of God. So I think that this chapter is really instructive for us in that regard. Yeah. And in terms of what he speaks about as the third pillar, so to speak, of this participate as actively in the sermon as the preacher himself, I think the low hanging fruit there is, is something that we both agree would be to have as much active listening as possible. But I think what he's really intimating is something, of course, that's much deeper than that. And that questions, what do you do in preparation? I mean, are you really ready to receive when you walk into the Lord's house on the Lord's day? Yeah. And that's a tougher question. And we have a previous episode where we talk about what it means to prepare for the Lord's day and to do that consecutively and actively and volitionally is a challenge to be ready because that, that of course involves you thinking on Saturday and even perhaps throughout the week, am I ready? Am I processing what has been preached on the previous Lord's day? Am I putting that into practice? Am I actively meditating on it? And then am I getting myself in a place through repentance and through active obedience that I'm ready for the preacher to preach to me? And I think part of that, what's hard for me is it's the sense that I need to relinquish all of my hobby horses, even my theological hobby horses in a sense, so that when I come before the pastor, I'm not trying to critique the sermon. I'm just ready to receive because if the Bible is being read and is being preached, then there is something that is going out that is for me. And that is either going to cut across me, encourage me or edify me, but there is something there. And so the distraction here is I think that as Christians, if we just get turned off by one particular thing, we tend to discount everything. And we just, of course, throw the baby out with the bathwater. So when you read this idea of like actively participating in the sermon, as much as the preacher himself, and again, like we think a preacher is like a good preacher is proclaiming the word of God. And of course that involves emotion and energy and there's a power behind it because these are God's words, as you said. That seems like a lot of work and a lot of action. So yeah. for Dr. Beaky to write, like, no, the, the listener has a role that is equally active. What do you think that looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, as I've said, you know, if you take the sermon as a thing, as an entity, the beginning of that sermon starts much earlier in the week. Right. So the preaching on the Lord's day is sort of the culmination of a whole process that began probably multiple weeks before most, most pastors, most preachers are planning out their sermons and they're starting to do their study for their next sermon more than just a single week in advance. They kind of are working on more than one sermon at a time, but at the very least, it probably started Monday in earnest. And so I think in order to be as active as the pastor in, in the preaching of the word means that our preparation also needs to start 
well in advance of the service. So praying well in terms of praying for your pastor as he's preparing, studying the scripture. You, you may not be studying the same text that's being preached on, but being in the word will help you to receive the word more. I can't tell you how many times, um, and you know, this isn't some... This isn't a miraculous thing. This is just God's ordinary providence and the way that the scriptures right. function. But I can't tell you how many times something that I've been reading in my own personal study or devotions ties into the sermon in a way that I would not have seen previously. Some insight or some point that the pastor makes that hits home in a different way than it would have otherwise, because I read something in the scripture earlier that draws that connection in a different way. And that's that's just a function. Like I said, that's a function of God's providence. It's not a miracle. It's not, we don't have to feel ooky spooky about it. It's just God's providence combined with the way he's designed scripture to work as a single cohesive whole. When we're studying the word on our own, apart from the, the Lord's day, it enriches our study on the Lord's day in a way that we should really be interested and invested in generating or in fostering. And then I think um, being engaged in the sermon in terms of the active listening things we've talked about before, maybe that means taking notes. Maybe if you're a really intense note taker, it means not taking notes and looking up right. from your notepad and actually making eye contact with the preacher once in a while. You know, there's a lot of different things and that part of it is very uh, individual per the person, I think, but being engaged in that active listening, um, that active internalization of what's being preached. Um, you know, I used to come out of a lot of sermons and I couldn't tell you what the sermon was about, but more often now, even when I'm not taking notes, I come out of the sermon and I remember more of what's going on because I've been actively digesting and kind of ruminating on it as the sermon has been going on. Which is a form of work in itself, right? I mean, that takes right. energy and focus. It is a training up of ourselves and discipline to yep. be focused and to be processing at the same time. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I right. love, I love that idea. Um, you know, one of the things as well that I think that Calvin really stresses on his preaching that I think we should talk about because this is like super in vogue. And sometimes I think this just gets thrown in as a form of signaling, but it's interesting how much Beaky stresses that Calvin was really focused on his piety in preaching. Yeah. And he makes a statement that fellowship from God to man is revelation. And then fellowship from man to God is piety. I like that juxtaposition, like yeah. that kind of circling back around this kind of wonderful circle of emphasis. And in the midst of that, it's interesting that he goes on to say basically that if we know God truly, then pious activity goes beyond this personal embrace of salvation to just the glory of God. Right. And that true piety is never for the person's welfare. And I love that because I think so much of us thinks like piety is good for me. And that is true right. in a sense. But we kind of elevate that as like the, the major means for piety. Like, yes, of course, it's to please God. But when in the midst of pleasing God, I'm also living like my best life now, essentially. Right. You know, I'm, I'm able to receive the all of the blessings of God because I'm being obedient. I get to really show and signal that. I am one of the true called out ones because I am taking seriously what God has commanded me to do. And so it's interesting that he emphasizes that the general movement of piety is actually Godward. It's actually never right. for our personal welfare. And that actually blew me away because that's not a popular train of thought in preaching today. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's absolutely right is that we, without even realizing it and maybe some of us with realizing it, but I think for the most part, we are part of a consumer culture and we have not properly abstracted or abdicated that culture from ourselves. Right on. And so we engage preaching or, or worship music, you know, musical worship or service projects. We engage all of these things that we're commanded to do, right? We're commanded to serve and love the poor. We're commanded to engage in musical worship. We're commanded to sit under the preaching of the word. And we engage those things from a consumer mentality where we kind of focus in and talk about what it is that we get from it, right? You go out of the service and you say, I didn't really get anything out of that sermon. Um, instead, right. you know, when's the last time, and I, I'm just as guilty of this, when's the last time you came out of a sermon and said, man, that sermon really glorified the Lord? Yeah, like God's, God's name was made great during that sermon, and I'm glad that I was there to witness that, that glorification of God. We, don't, we just don't think in those categories. And I think, I think Calvin 
that's one of the central recoveries of the Reformation, right? One of the five solas is sola Deo Gloria. That doesn't just mean we only worship God. That's a part of it. But it also means all things are done to the glory of God. And the glory of God is the central feature of not just the Reformed tradition, although in a kind of a heightened fashion in the Reformed tradition, but the whole Reformation was focused, at least in part, on coming back to a place where God's glory and worshiping the Lord and giving him the glory and honor due to his name, which involved not giving that to anyone else. That was a part of the Reformation that I think we've, we've all but lost in a lot of ways. Yes, that's well said. I love that idea of really evaluating a sermon by thinking, was God glorified in the midst of what I just witnessed? And what was my part in that? Going back to being actively participating in the glorification of God by listening to a sermon. Like, it just yeah. amazes me that God in really his infinite patience and his goodness is using these ordinary things, these really simple, straightforward means empowered by the Holy Spirit to do amazing and incredible things. And yeah. that really, we're, what he asks of us is obedience to those things. And sometimes that obedience is as simple as sit up and listen, be yeah. actively involved, open your eyes, open your ears, pay attention to what's happening here and respect the fact that something special and profound is happening here. And what yeah. I love about Calvin, as Dr. Beaky describes him, is I think what I get the sense from this chapter that's a little bit unique is that he really does a good job at bringing forward Calvin's pastoral heart. Because we tend to yeah. think of him, like you said, first and foremost, as a really technical and precise theologian. And he is that. But I think that if he were here, and I wish we could interview him, that he would say something to the extent of, I am a theologian because I need to be a good pastor. Right. And so that, and I think like on the side, without getting into this, I think this is still like a case for, a wonderful case for like the need for really great seminarian education for this very purpose. But one of the things I wanted to draw out for us to discuss is how well Calvin approaches this pastoral element, especially when it comes to experience and assurance of faith. And because you, I get the sense from, from Dr. Beakey's writing that here's a man that's preaching that we should have assurance of faith. And yet at the same time, because he's a pastor, he recognizes that it is difficult in the trenches when we're side by side with each other going through the trials and tribulations of life, that there are times when we are prone to doubt, that being tested by doubt, having severe temptations, wrestling and strife, those are all normative. And that's a yeah. pastoral emphasis. Yeah. And so uh, well, let's talk about like, how does Calvin reconcile faith that is characterized by full assurance and yet still allow for a kind of faith that lacks assurance. And I know I just asked you the question, but before we get to the question, <laughs> I want to say what I love about this is I seen in Calvin like a true pastor because here's like a dude who's super thoughtful about this stuff. You know, like it, in other words, it matters to spend time in theology. It matters to hone our thinking about God. And here's a place where we see the fruit of that being born in all of its glory. So like, do, do you have any thoughts as you read this chapter? He talks a lot about how Calvin is able kind of to bring together this sense of full assurance and yet allow for the kind of faith that lacks assurance. Well, I mean, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure always how to answer that question because on some levels, I think Calvin, you know, sometimes Calvin, because because I think he d dives into predestination um, and election and some of the sort of secret things of God, um, right. I think sometimes he get this, gets this reputation as an overly speculative theologian, which I think is a really, really unjustified, um, an unjustified accusation. And it's usually made as an accusation. But the other thing that I think he gets an unfair reputation as is someone who um, has to reconcile every loose odd and end in theology such that there's no loose ends, there's no difficulties or struggles. And that's usually brought in the form of like a pejorative kind of statement that like, well, you're just, you're just imposing your own system on the scripture. So you, you kind of, right. you kind of pound the verse into where, into make it fit, whether it fits or not. And I think that Calvin in general was much more comfortable with um, paradox and apparent contradiction than we give him credit for. So I think on one level, you know, he's coming to the scripture and he is recognizing what he thinks is the case that scripture teaches that by definition, faith is assurance, right? And, and it's as simple as formulating it as this. Can you, tr can you really say that you trust Jesus 
if you're not sure that you can trust Jesus or you're not right. sure that you have trusted Jesus. Right. Can you really say, you know, it'd be like, um, it'd be like saying, well, you know, you know, the, the classic example is like the way you show you trust a chair isn't sitting down in it. Well, if you sit down in the chair and every like couple of seconds, you're like standing up because you think it's going to fall out from underneath you. Can you really say you trust that chair? And so, so Calvin is coming to scripture and he's seeing, he's seeing in his interpretation of scripture that that's the definition of faith, that it's this sure confidence and assurance in the promises of God. And not just that the promises of God are there, but that God has promised those things to me, that I'm yes. a recipient of the promises of God. He sees that, but then he also recognizes even in his own life, maybe even especially in his own life, um, you know, he doesn't tell us a lot about his own experience of salvation and piety, but there are a lot of things that go on in Calvin's life that would certainly, certainly make most people question the, the, the goodness of God. So there were, there had to have been times where he looked at it and said, I, man, this just doesn't seem like it's working for me. It doesn't seem like what God has said is true is true. He sees his experience. He sees the experience of those around him. As a pastor, he understands people coming to him with doubt. And he's basically saying, I'm okay with that apparent contradiction. Right. Like, I'm okay with the fact that my experience doesn't line up with what I think scripture is saying. Because at the end of the day, the scripture is more sure than my experience ever could be. And so the scripture makes these promises to me. The scriptures make this promise that if I receive these promises by faith, then I not only can have confidence, but I must have confidence and an assure assurance that God is for me. But I, I don't always feel that way. So yes. I think he's mo mostly he's just comfortable with that, that apparent contradiction and that that um, antimony between his experience and, and the experience of the Christian and what the scriptures teach about the matter. And when I sense him being comfortable with that by way of this the writing in this particular chapter, my initial response was, dude, that's a pastor. Like only yeah. a pastor can really be comfortable with that because on the one hand, he is saying very straightforwardly that faith is never merely assent, but it involves both knowledge and trust. And that faith involves, like you said, this personal subjective assurance. The true believer recognizes and celebrates that God is gracious and benevolent to him in particular. And yet at the same time, there is a difference between what faith ought to be and what faith often is in daily life. And I think that that's where you get the pastoral heart, that there is this struggle and there is this journey. And Calvin seems to embody that so well, perhaps both in his own life, but maybe in particular in his teaching, that even his preaching was very sensitive to that particular dissonance, if you will, between experience and assurance of faith. And to that matter, I think that's what Beaky is driving us towards. This idea that, again, experiential preaching leads us, in a sense, to take inventory, to take stock of our own lives and say, not just God is gracious, but God is gracious to me on yeah. this day, in this minute. I sense that as a reality. And so there is this beauty when we understand that, when we take stock, what we find is that all of a sudden, when we're honest with ourselves, when we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, when we take an assessment of ourselves, we find that it exactly comports with the biblical data. In other words, like that's what experiential, I think, living under Christianity is about. It's not about saying like necessarily, and th this may be the case in some extreme circumstances, but normatively, it's not saying like God laid this on my heart or I had this dream that God gave me. It's not about those things. It's, it's about understanding what it means for God to be gracious to you, seeing yourself saved, and that being the normative pattern that God gives us in Scripture. Everything lines up all of a sudden. And when that happens, there's just an amazing doxology that takes yeah. place. And the doxology, this is what's incredible, takes place in the midst of that suffering dissonance. Yeah. It's almost as if God himself says, I understand uh, in my, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Uh, right. So... It's like a beautiful thing. Yeah. I just want to read this passage um, that kind of is where, where Dr. Beaky, Beaky, Dr. Beaky, <laughs> Dr. Beaky is answering this question. Uh, it's on the top of page 121. And it says the believer can experience such apparent contradictions on a daily basis. Calvin says he can feel forsaken of God, even that when he knows deep within that he is not. These conflicting experiences transpire within one heart and seem like hope and fear to cancel each other out. If fear gets the upper hand, Calvin writes, we ought simply to throw ourselves wholly on the promise of God. 
Those promises give us courage to go on in spite of temptations to doubt. Moreover, it is especially when we acknowledge by faith that God is present, even though we cannot see him or feel his goodness and power, that we truly honor his lordship and his word. To believe in God when experience seems to annul his promises takes great faith, but it is precisely this experience of faith that enables believers to remain undisturbed when their entire world seems to be shaken. And, you know... Amen. I, I've, I don't know if I've told this account or told this story on, on the show or, or not before, but when I was um, in college, I had a friend who, um, you know, that he and his wife met in college. They got married shortly after college, and I kind of lost track of them. Um, you know, it was like two, three years later. I hadn't spoken with either of them for some time. And I got a Facebook message telling me that the wife had been killed in a really terrible car accident, like a really, really terrible wow. car accident. And to make matters worse, um, they had believed that they were unable to have a child because of some medication that the the wife was on. And they had recently found out that the new treatment she was on had enabled them to get pregnant. And she was she was coming home from her first ultrasound when she was killed. And so you, you have you have this this uh, enormous joy that that he's experienced and then this heart wrenching, soul crushing just destruction that is wrought on his life. And I'll never forget this moment because he he at the funeral, he was helped into the pulpit. He wasn't preaching, but the, the pulpit was just where the microphone was. He was helped into the pulpit and he kind of you could tell he was shaky and he had obviously been crying. And he stood in that pulpit and he looked out into the crowd and he was able to say, I know that my redeemer lives and that I will see him in my flesh. And he, he piggybacked that by saying, I know that my wife and my child's redeemer lives and I will see them in their flesh again. And he was able to have confidence in the promises of God because of who God is, not because of what God appeared to be doing. And it was, it was amazing. I, I mean, I'll never forget the look on his face as he started to proclaim the promises of God and what they meant in this moment he grew stronger and stronger and he stopped shaking and he stood up straight. And, and it was just this moment of clarity for me that, and this is not a slam on my Arminian brothers and sisters. There are, are plenty of good faithful Arminians, but that theology cannot produce that kind of confidence. Right. If the best that you can say is this crappy thing happened and God somehow most likely will make something good out of it. But apart from that, it has no meaning or purpose in itself that's not assurance. That's not confidence. And that's not comfort. So the, this, this preaching that we have, this assurance of salvation that Calvin kind of brought back to the front of our minds in the Reformation, this assurance only comes with reformed experiential preaching. If you don't have a God who is sovereign to the uttermost, who is foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, you cannot have assurance of faith. Because what happens if tomorrow... I decide that I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Well, right. unless God is sovereign and in control, left to my own devices, I would flee the faith immediately. There's no way that I would stay a Christian because even after I've been regenerated, I'm still still partly mixed. I'm still a mixed body in my own my own spirit. So I just think it's really important for us to, to remember that about Calvin and about his preaching is that the assurance of faith that Calvin could proclaim was not just a result of his reading of the scripture, but particularly was his a result of his understanding of the utter sovereignty of God over not just the big events of the world, but over the minuscule events, including the salvation of individuals. So I just, right. I just want to underscore that as we kind of come to a close here. That is as good a summary of this chapter as any. And I wish we had so much more time because obviously, and probably you and I will talk about this at length yeah. another time when we're together. This was an amazing chapter. And I, this is this chapter alone, chapter six, is worth the price of admission for this book, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I, I haven't encountered a chapter in the book where I was like, meh. That was, that was okay. I mean, they're all really good, but I was particularly looking to this one because I've done a little bit of study on Calvin, the preacher, and, and this chapter did not disappoint. No. And what really struck me again about this, this chapter was you would think in reading a book like this, it would get like very tactical about, you know, how many sermons were preached and what he liked to do and what notes he used and how many verses he exegeted each Sunday. And what I found like just so refreshing is it really spoke more about the man and about the underpinnings of his preaching. Yeah. And I found it really, to my surprise, like 
theologically deep in the sense that, well, here's the things that matter to Calvin. This is why he was the preacher. Yeah. And so this was a chapter in some beautiful theology and I was really edified and strengthened in my faith, let alone from like finding out practical things that helped me be a better listener yeah. to sermons. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, this is something I was thinking about because I actually had an opportunity to, to share a message with the congregation today. So this chapter, as I was preparing, kind of was weighing heavy on me. And one of the things that I think is so amazing about a lot of these Reformation preachers, you know, you go to seminary and you take these preaching courses and it's so much about the mechanics of preparing and presenting a sermon, blah, blah, blah. None of that was present with these guys, right? They, right? they went in, you know, you talk about like, well, talk about how many sermons and what notes he preached. The answer is no notes. Like yeah, Calvin exactly. didn't go into this, into the pulpit with notes. He went into the pulpit with his Greek New Testament or his Hebrew Bible, and he translated on the fly and he preached the gospel from whatever passage was in front of him and he made application. And I think, you know... As I'm, I'm learning to preach and as I'm, I'm getting more experience, that's the kind of preacher I want to be, right? I don't want to rely on, and, and there's nothing wrong with sermon intros and, and hooks in the title. Like there's nothing wrong with that, but I want to be a preacher that just goes in with the Bible. And, and this is where it's key. In the Bible, not, you have to have not only a technical mastery of the whole Bible comprehensively to do that, but you have to have gotten the Bible in you in order to get it out. Calvin could right. be an experiential preacher, not because he crafted clever experiential turns of phrases or clever ways to hook the audience, but because he had experienced what he was preaching and like a, like a, a starving man, he was just telling other people where to find bread. And right I think on. that's, you know, if more preachers, more, more congregations had that approach to the scriptures, I think that the church would be in a whole different place than it is. You're right, because there's something almost bold and audacious about Calvin in his approach to like the technical portion of preaching, because he considered basically extemporaneous delivery as like a declaration of God's power. Exactly. Now that's like a bold statement. Yeah. You know, like I mean, that, that almost is, is saying like, this is a sign that God is going to show up and deliver is how well I speak to you this morning. I mean, but that's yeah. basically what he's doing. There is no net there. Right. And, and so you're right. There's a person and it's not just about like intellectual capacity, because I fear that some people might read that or think what we're saying here is we just a really like he's a wicked smart dude and he had a lot of time on his hands and he just all he did was study. Some of that is true for sure. But I don't know how above average he was or whether he was even above average. What we get a sense, though, from is exactly what you're saying. And that is he was deeply involved in relationship with God, the father. Yeah. And so because of that, everything flowed out of this connection that he had with the Trinity by way of his personal worship, his personal piety. And then everything came out of that. Exactly. And so that is, there's something to be said for, for right there. And yeah. I think that's a, that's an example that we can all follow in regardless of whether or not our quote unquote vocational ministry involves preaching to a group of people right. on the Lord's day. Yeah. 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 Well, so I think should that's we, a um, good, but, 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 it's you like go a, first. Like a, like a British radio drama right there. That's like the most, yeah. you know, uh, I was going to say, should we uh, close out real quick with a little spiritual conferencing? Are you down Let's for do that? It. Yeah. Why don't you go first? Okay. So I've just been pickling and marinating myself in the books of Samuel, as I mentioned before. And uh, I was just laughing this week, or not chortling, if you will, maybe to myself, literally laughing out loud at one point. Um, Maybe this says more about me. It definitely says more about me than the scriptures because I'm to the point now where uh, David has now twice basically been like secretly uh, convicted by somebody. And I would think like at this point, if I'm King David and somebody <laughs> who I don't really know approaches me <laughs> or even know and tells me a story, I don't want to come on too strong <laughs> because yeah. they're going to be like, it's you, dude. It's, it's you. you. It's about it's you. Def it's always you, um, David. So there was Nathan, and then there's this woman of Tekoa, which is, this is basically after Absalom has, you know, tried to take the kingdom. But this woman is approaching David and giving this elaborate story from, by Joab's instruction. And there, there was this one sentence, basically, that struck me this time, that she says to him in the course of kind of talking about why is it you're treating Absalom this way, and, and why haven't you reconciled? Uh, but she says this, because I just find, of course, everywhere we see the, I don't want to say fingerprint, that's so lame. Everywhere we see the imprint, I guess, of Jesus Christ everywhere. But she says this, like in the middle of basically confronting him and explaining the story that demands justice. This is what she says. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. 
Yeah. That just rocked my world. Like in the middle of that, I was like, what a beautiful sentence. That is, talk about experience. That is my life. Yeah. That, that God is so loving and so kind that even the banished one, he does not want to be cast out. So I was just completely taken by that in the midst of this account of this woman bringing a sense of conviction into David. And it's about something that is both related and unrelated, but it's, it's all salvific here. We're seeing this wonderful reconciliation that God's desire is for the banished one to not be cast out. And yet the one who had, who was most in the center of God's will, the one who was the most close to the heart of God, the one who truly had the heart after the father was banished in a sense and bore my sin so that I might be able to live under this promise that the one who is banished would not be cast out. I love that. So so beautiful. How about you? Yeah. So this is a little bit of confession time for me, I think. So let's do it. I mentioned that this week, um, you know, I had the, um, the blessing of addressing the congregation from the pulpit and helping our pastor feel uh, a little bit better about taking some time off by knowing there was someone to deliver the, the gospel while he was gone. And so uh, as I'm preparing for my sermon, um, I selected a text and I kind of had in mind one direction it was going to go. And, and it often happens that you you select your text, you start to do your prep and you realize you're going a little bit of a different direction. And as I was doing my, my preparation for my sermon, um, I sort of started to realize that the sermon was going in a more like overtly evangelistic like meet like direction, which doesn't seem like a problem. But um, I am in a church where we have... 11 members in the church and one person who's a regular attender that's not a member. Um, it's very uncommon for us to have visitors. That's just the place that our church is at. And so I I actually know all of the people in the church and I know them well enough to have a as much certainty about anyone uh, that they're saved. So it I, I'm preparing this and I'm like, man, maybe I got to start over because because, I, you know, why would I preach an evangelistic sermon in a church where I know everybody's saved? Like, what's the point? Um, well, of course, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be obedient. So I'm just going where I think the scriptures are taking me. And, um, lo and behold, two visitors show up today. So, you know, it turns out after talking with them, they're, they're Christians, they're, they're new to the area. Um, but I didn't know that. And so I was so like, kind of broken this morning, right before going into the pulpit, which isn't usually the right place to be, but sometimes it is, um, I was so broken by the fact that I had taken for granted that I didn't need to preach the gospel as though there were lost sinners in the congregation. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I prayed about it and I, I did my best to trust the Holy Spirit and to let him shape and reshape my sermon on the fly. Um, I'm already trying to go in that, that line of, of preaching that John Calvin is. So I try to go in with kind of a minimalistic um, uh, set of notes. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to assess my own sermon, but I felt confident that the Holy Spirit delivered through me the message that he intended to deliver. Um, and it was much more evangelistic than I had even planned initially. So um, there's got to be a reason for that. Um, I I don't know the two uh, visitors, so I don't know for sure whether they're saved, but, um, you know, God is going to do what he's going to do with that sermon. So it it was both convicting because I sort of, um, I sort of stood up and was like, no, no. And I'm not trying to be like charismatic, but I sort of had this moment where I was like, God, why are you, why are you leading me to prepare this evangelistic sermon when, when the people that are there are all saved? Um, So there was this moment of questioning God, but then there was also sort of this moment of resolution as I'm going into the pulpit saying, all right, God, there's a reason I didn't prepare a lot of notes. So let's just see what happens. I'm just going to trust you to take me where I need to go. Um, So I I think in terms of what I'm learning from that or what I learned from that is that I really just, instead of strategizing when I'm trying to, to write a sermon, maybe I just need to sit in front of the text for a long time and see what comes to me or what, what God teaches me as I'm studying. Um, and then bring that to the, bring that to the congregation. Right. I appreciate you sharing that because I think there is a temptation among anybody who's even somewhat familiar with the scriptures 
when they're tasked, and this could be anybody, it could be you're teaching Sunday school, you're teaching a children's church, you're giving a, a message or a lecture, that there's sense where we look at the passage and we dissect it in such a way so that we can teach to others, as opposed right. to reading the passage and living it out first. Yeah. And then letting that living out be the thing that breathes life into our teaching. And that there's a big difference between those two. So yeah. I affirm your direction in that. I think that's fantastic. I also, this is definitely like if there were any question as to whether or not this is a reform podcast. I love that you had to clarify in the midst of like explaining your prayer that you were not charismatic. <laughs> you know how it is. Some people are like, Oh, the spirit was moving. I just let, I just opened my out mouth and the spirit came out as though there was like no engagement of the intellect, which is obviously not what I was saying. Like I was, I was intentionally like rethinking things, but it, it really was um, sort of this moment of like, I've just got to go where, and this is, this is what was really convicting about it is like, I came to the passage and that passage is there for a reason. Um, right. And, and I was preaching that passage for a reason and all of this is happening in God's plan. And I, you know, maybe I, I felt like I was second guessing myself, but at the end of the day, like the reason that that passage was there was because God intended to be preached. And the reason I was going the direction I was going is because God intended me to go that direction. So it, it ultimately, it was sort of a Jonah experience, to be honest with you, because it was like at first I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to go that direction, God. And then when I when I did that, when finally I was like, all right, let's go. The big fish just spit me out. Here I am. Right. Um, it was like all of a sudden, oh, why didn't I just do this in the first place? It's so much easier just to obey the Lord. Yeah, fair, fair enough. I mean, this brings us full circle, basically. It's, yep. And we need to, as reformed people, kind of settle into this idea and be comfortable with it. That again, by way of obedience... God takes ordinary means and makes them into extraordinary things. Yeah. And I, I appreciate your obedience in that respect. And I presume that this ended much better, like without a plant and a worm. Yeah. I don't think there was any plants. No vine. No vine. No, no. You, and God didn't have to remind me about all the cattle. <laughs> that I is the that best passage. ending to any podcast we've had it so is. far. <laughs> and also many cattle. <laughs> well, on that note, <laughs> until next time, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm